with me tonight to Luke chapter 4. It's kind of a, as you know, it's, it's Valentine's Day, but it's also uh, Ash Wednesday, uh, which has been traditionally celebrated as the, uh, really the beginning of 40 days of fasting. The Catholic Church calls it penance uh, on the way towards celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Uh, <clears throat> we might say repentance. I don't uh, know that we would ascribe to the idea of penance and somehow uh, uh, earning, earning our good favor with God. Uh, but we do believe in repentance, and certainly it matches up Ash Wednesday with what we've been talking about in Hosea as well. Uh, but a lot of the, uh, a lot of the text uh, associated with Lent or the beginning of Lent, a lot of folks will go to chapter four uh, of Luke. I think it's also maybe chapter four of Matthew as well, the, the parallel story of the temptation of Jesus. Uh, I have for a long time uh, studied and thought about the nature of Christ. Uh, obviously, we believe him to be fully God and fully man uh, and what that means. Uh, and it's, you've heard me say this before, but it, and it's very much important. Um, but Jesus is, he's not, a, he's not a blending of deity and humanity. In other words, there's not a mixture of those. He is fully man uh, without any mixture, and he is fully God without any mixture. Uh, so it's not a blending. He's not the God-man in the sense that uh, they're just uh, blending those two together and he's kind of, of a, God, uh, a God-like man walking around on the earth. No, he was man, fully man, just like you and I. Um, and, and I've always thought, about what, what are the implications of that in terms of the, of the incarnation? Uh, he is eternally the Son, uh, just as the Holy Spirit is eternally the Holy Spirit and the Father is eternally the Father. Uh, they didn't become Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at some time in the past. They were eternally existing as Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, each with their specific role in the Godhead, but yet God. Uh, so, so that's a mystery in and of itself. But the question that always was raised in my mind is, if Jesus in the incarnation has come to be the Lamb of God, uh, the perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world, uh, how must he live his life in the incarnation? Uh, can, he, can he exercise the power of God and overcome sin? Or does he have to do it uh, by submitting to the Father uh, just like we have to do it? Uh, is, he, is he submitting to the Father as a man, fully man, and yielding to the Father, and, and so faithful was Christ in his humanity that he never sinned? Um, I think that's the only way he could have been the perfect sacrifice. And so I think that's what you see that happening in the temptation. And if you really read the temptations of Christ, there's a, there's a lot here. So uh, be patient with me. And some of my thoughts are probably not as ordered as I would like to have them, but I think you'll get what I'm saying here. So let's read that uh, in chapter 4 of Luke, verse 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Uh, keep that phrase and that verse in mind. Uh, he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. 
and he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and glory and its glory for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomsoever I will. Therefore, if you worship before me, it'll be all yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him, very important phrase here, until an opportune time. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us tonight as we wade into the weighty reality of the incarnation of Christ in the flesh and as we try to understand what's happening in this text, what's happening in Christ's temptation, what is being accomplished there and what is the devil's aim. And so we need your wisdom and your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I just kind of thought of it in terms of the preparation for this temptation. Uh, it was quite interesting uh, and there was, this is the Lent connection, there was 40 days essentially of fasting for Jesus. But what struck me is it's when this came to its end that the temptation came. So you might have in the imagery in your mind, he's wandering in the desert for 40 days fasting and all the while along the way, the devil's tempting me. It doesn't say that. In other words, after 40 days of fasting, when his fleshly body, which is the emphasis, when his fleshly body would be feeling, would be feeling the greatest need and urge to be fed, this is when the devil comes. And that's, that's striking to me because it's almost as if the devil understands that this Christ, this Messiah, this God incarnate uh, is living and Sub, has subjected himself now to all the vulnerabilities of human flesh. Now, whether or not Satan understands the purpose for that, ultimately being the redemption of man, he seems to be, he seems to be capitalizing on, on this reality that Jesus has subjected himself. He's not going to exercise his deity freely apart from the Father. So he's living now as a man. And I know men. And I'm going after him. I'm going to exploit the flesh. And so I'm going to let him do his fasting and for 40 days. And, and at the end of the 40 days, when the, when the hunger has finally set in, then I'm going to him. Because then he's going to be at his most vulnerable. You see, and I, and I say that because some people might hear that and they think you're somehow minimizing the deity of Christ. And I'm not at all. I'm, I'm maximizing the fullness of the humanity of Christ, which was essentially the sacrifice that he was going to lay upon the altar. And so he had to lay it there as a man. And so the devil exploits that fleshly or that humanity here, and that's what really stands out. I wrote in this in my notes, the devil does not come during the fasting, but at its conclusion. 
He lets Christ's devotion go unchallenged, for the, for the Son has unbroken communion with the Father. And perhaps the devil anticipated that in the light and comfort of that communion and in the calm and peace that followed it, that given the humanity and flesh of Christ, there would be an, un, a, a, an unguarded moment as the body of Christ had hungered. So when it had ended, he became hungry, it says. And so it really struck me that this, this wandering in the wilderness was a communion. Remember, Jesus wasn't a fallen man. He was in right communion with the Father. There was no sin interrupting or obscuring him, nothing to bring doubts into his mind. He was in the wilderness and, and, and fasting for 40 days in communion with the Father. And how perhaps great comfort and great encouragement there and, and communion with the Father. It's not like ours. He has no sin to interrupt or obscure that in any way. He was, he was communing with the Father. And so there would be a sense of comfort and of encouragement and maybe even of strength there. Maybe it was a preference for the Father that produced the 40 days fasting. In other words, I don't need food. I have food with my Father. And so he may have felt strengthened at that moment. And so the devil doesn't go after him while he's communing with the Father for the 40 days. It's when the fasting ended. Now the flesh of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus would experience the actual hunger of humanity, of a man who had gone 40 days without eating. And then that's when Satan comes to him to exploit uh, his flesh and perhaps even to take advantage of a, of a sense of comfort and encouragement he had drawn from the Father in that communion. It, it struck me that that seems to be when we're most vulnerable, when we've had a, a wonderful experience with God and our communion is close and we feel encouraged and strengthened and hopeful and then all of a sudden the, the body's needs become uh, uh, evident to us somehow. Perhaps it's a diagnosis in some way. But So we're in this fellowship and we feel strengthened and encouraged. And all of a sudden the needs of the flesh come to bear. And it seems like it makes us more vulnerable at that point to the attacks of Satan. So what I'm getting at is Satan seems to be coming at Jesus singularly, singularly concentrating on the humanity of Jesus. It's almost as if he says, okay, if he can't, if he can't exercise his deity, I got him. Because I've got, I've got humans figured out. I know the flesh of humanity. I've spent my whole lifetime uh, tempting humanity. I know the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities of human flesh. And if Jesus has subjected himself to walk as a man fully submissive to the Father, then Jesus is refusing to exercise his personal prerogative to, to exercise uh, divinity here. And, you, and I get that from Philippians uh, chapter 2 when it says uh, have this attitude in you, in, Christ, in, in you which was also in Christ Jesus who uh, being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but laid aside his privileges and took upon himself the form of a servant and he talks about how he he yielded in that fashion all the way unto the death of the cross and for that reason, God has given him a name above every name, as the Philippian says there. So I'm drawing that from that. It's as if Satan understands that Jesus has subjected himself now in his humanity and, and to the Father and is not going to exercise his personal prerogative to exercise divine power. And he's going to live as a man. I got him right where I want him now. Because now I got his flesh to work with. 
And that seems to be what he attacks. So, so that's significant. Notice uh, when he, in the first temptation in regards to bread, Jesus actually quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. And if you read the entirety of that uh, passage there, he's talking in terms of, of the wilderness wanderings of Israel. And what they were wondering for, and I shared in a recent message, the reason God sent them back out into the wilderness is because they would not subject and submit themselves and obey God and go into the promised land. And so he sends them out in 40 years in the wilderness. And what they were learning every day was that I can't get provisions ahead of time. We are literally living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, that's the text that he's quoting. He's quoting from Psalm whenever Jesus responds to him. But, but notice how the devil in verse 3 tries to exploit that. He says several things. If, if you are the Son of God, uh, remember he's, he's dealing now with the flesh, he thinks, in terms of the humanity of Jesus. And he knows the vulnerability of human beings to doubt when it comes to trusting God. The people of Israel did it. Prophets have done it at times. You and I have done it. And so he approaches Jesus in his humanity now, and he says, if, if. And so he sows this suspicion there that there's a possibility here or the implication that it's a possibility that you may not be the Son of God. So if, if you are the Son of God. Notice as well that he says him, say or speak to these. One, I think the Matthew version says, uh, command that these stones should become bread. If you're the son of God. Uh, so, so the ideal here is he brings to mind here an authority. It's as if he's saying, if you are, then you have, use it. If you are the son of God, then you have authority. Right? He's, he's drawing the deity. Use the deity. If you're the son of God, show your deity and command authority, exercise authority over the stones and they'll become bread. So now he's trying to provoke him to, to exercise his deity apart, apart from his submission to the father. So he's drawing him to act outside the flesh. He, he wants him to be something more than just a man. He wants him to be more than a man. That way he can't be a substitute for us. If he's more than a man... He can't be substitute for us. So Jesus is staying within his humanity. He's submitted to the Father. He's walking and living as a man in the incarnation. And if he, and if he goes outside of that and blends them and borrows his deity now to escape some temptation, then he's acting in ways that we can act. And he ceases to be a representative of us. He ceases to be our Adam in that moment. The devil is wily. He is clever and he is crafty. And he's been exploiting humanity ever since the beginning. And, that's, and he knows Jesus is in the flesh now and walking in his humanity, submissive to the Father. And he's doing all he can to exploit the weakness of the flesh and try to get Jesus to act outside of that so that he can, in his mind, disqualify him. And I think that's what's happening here. He's implying in some sense that not doing so, if you don't do this, that would suggest then that you lack the authority and are, and, and are thus not the one you believe yourself to be. You see, he's trying to trap him here. If you are, then exercise the authority. And if you don't exercise the authority, 
then you're not really, who, you're not really the son of God. And so he's trying to pin him here. If I, if I draw him out and he exercises the authority, he ceases to be qualified as a, as a substitute for human beings. And if he doesn't do it, I'll accuse him of not being who he says he is, the Son of God. Because the Son of God has authority. And if you don't, have a, if you don't command these stones to be bred and feed yourself, then you don't have the authority. And if you don't have the authority, you're not even the Son of God. I mean... It, it, it's stunning to me the wisdom and the, the glory of Christ in his humanity that he would yield and submit himself to the Father and not be deceived by these clever Edenic-like temptations. The first Adam fell for this, right? Eve fell and then Adam followed her. So the first man failed in these temptations. He, he moved outside of his station if God knows that in the day you eat thereof, you will be like him. He's withholding it from you because he don't want you to be like him. There's something more for you that God has withheld from you. If you'll come outside of your station, you can receive that thing. And they fell for it. And they plunged the entirety of the human race into sin, irreparable harm, and condemnation. Now Jesus, our second Adam, is going through the temptation. But he doesn't fall for this because he quotes scripture, not only the verse itself, but reminding him of the experience of why Israel uh, came to understand that we live day by day by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus wasn't just quoting scripture. He just spent 40 days doing it. <laughs> he didn't need anything. He had been surviving by the communion and the word of his father. And because the flesh was hungry, which is a natural thing for human flesh, the devil sought to exploit that now, to get him to feed himself on something else. And Jesus cites Deuteronomy, not just because he knows all Scripture, he's the author of Scripture, but because he, is, he has just experienced in the temptations or in the wilderness and the fastings in his flesh what it means to live and to find sustenance and provision and life by the very Word of God, not just bread. And so he cites that passage of Scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He goes further, that verse follows up, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus is quoting scripture, but he's also citing his just, just, uh, just experienced reality. He had been surviving for 40 days. I believe literally here that was without food. I don't know. Uh, I've seen people do hunger strikes before, and I don't know that they could last 40 days. But Jesus is surviving and lasting 40 days without food. He must be experiencing some life-preserving or life-giving communion with the Father that's rooted in His Word and His fellowship with the Father that exceeds even the, the need of the human body for life. So when he says this, I don't think he's just quoting Scripture. He's, he's speaking from his present experience. I have just lived in the wilderness, 40 days without eating, communing and feeding upon the word of my Father. I'm not going to turn to bread, stones to bread to satisfy this fleshly hunger. Because I'm, a man is more than his flesh. And Jesus is living in the humanity. 
I wrote here the, the quotation in Deuteronomy 8.3 suggests in its larger context that this was the truth uh, that the wilderness wanderings were to establish in the hearts, obviously, of the Jews would be his people. But in his humanity, God the Son must experience, learn, the scriptures say he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. So in his humanity, God the Son must experience, learn, and learn what faithfulness in is as a man, fully man. If he would be man's perfect, sinless sacrifice, he must live as man in a fallen world, subject to temptations, yet without sin. Tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. See, I hope you understand what I'm saying. If, if I can borrow from some self uh, identity or self-divinity to overcome the temptations of the flesh, then I'm not acting as a man because you and I can't do that. We're not, we're not borrowing from something in and of ourselves. Yes, as Christians, by trusting in God, we can overcome the temptations and the sins of the flesh, but you have nothing inherent within you as far as deity goes that you can whip out and, and, and bring against the temptations. You have to endure that as a man subjected to the Father. And I believe that that's how Jesus had to endure these temptations. Or else, or else it seems as though he wouldn't have been an appropriate sacrifice for us because he wouldn't be like us. He wouldn't be a man. He would be, he would be something, a superman, if you will. And he's debarring from his super, super divinity to overcome sin. And you and I couldn't do that. If Jesus fails, this is Satan, I think, if Jesus fails, his death cannot procure salvation for man, since his death, in that case, would be counted as ours, as ours is, as the wages of his sin. And so if Jesus fails here, he, he, there's, no more, there's no hope. If he fails here, even if he dies, he's dying for his own sin, because the wages of sin is death for all those who are in the flesh. So if Jesus violates here, if he gets out from under his subjection to the Father in one minute and steps outside of the fullness of his humanity, walking in perfect submission to the Father, he sins. And if he dies, he dies because of his own sin and not because of ours. But if he, but if he survives this without sin, and he's crucified as a perfect, sinless sacrifice of God, then your sins can be covered. In fact, your sins will be the only way he can die because the wages of sin is death. So if he dies and he's without sin, then the only way he can die is if he has sin upon him. Whose sin? Your sin and my sin. What the devil plotted here and in each of the temptations, I think, was far more sinister than merely causing Jesus to stumble but nothing less than the destruction of the entirety of the human race. That highest display of the glory of God is evident in the Imagio Dei. That's the, that's the sinister agenda. If I, can, if I can ruin him, I can ruin humanity. All those millions and millions of bearers of the Imagio Dei, I can destroy them all and demonstrate myself superior to God Almighty. I will be God. That's what's at stake here. 
I mean, and I, that's why I say the weightiness of this. When I was reading through this and thinking through this text, I'm thinking like the universe must have been holding its breath in this moment. Because the slightest deviation from this perfect submission in Christ and his humanity to the Father, this perfect submission, the slightest deviation from that would constitute sin and destine the entirety of God's created human race and creation itself, plunge it into the certainty of eternal destruction. There's a lot hanging in the balance here. Let me just say, if he fails here, you and I are deceiving ourselves to think we're saved. Because if he failed here, he died for his own sins. And if he died for his own, he can't die for yours. He can't die for yours. And your death for your sins still awaits you. We are in a frightening place if he fails here. And he's got the, the, the deceiver and the father of all lies trying to get him to, coming against him. Uh, I've, I've heard people before I'm not condemning you if you do this and not even judging you, but I've heard people speak as though they talk to the devil and tell him what to do all the time. And I remember telling somebody one time, they went through that, and I said, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't have no conversations with him. If I hear him say something, I don't say a word. I'm not going to call him out. I'm not going to tell him what to do. I'm not going to do all this. Jesus can do that on my behalf. Yes, yes sir. And I pray that he does, but I'm not getting in a conversation with him because he'll outsmart you and I in a minute. And we are no match for him. He is going up against the sinless, perfect Son of God, submitted in the, in the flesh to the Father here. And he is, if he will take him on, do you think you and I are going to be any match for him in our flesh? I don't think so. Notice what's omitted here but by every word proceeding from the mouth of God. So Jesus, Jesus doesn't uh, finish with that statement. Uh, he knows the text. As I said, he's the author of the text, but he doesn't conclude the statement because I think he's already demonstrated his own survival by that very statement. The tempter would come again, but here with the fleshly vulnerability of Jesus, the man, Satan sought him, uh, all, uh, Satan sought him out supposing it to be an opportune time. And I'm referring to the last phrase there. In other words, Satan sat by apparently and observed the 40 days of fasting. And perhaps he said, oh, he's enjoying that communion with the Father. He's finding comfort and encouragement and hope and strength. But all the while I know that his body's getting hungry. He may not be aware of it now because he's communing with the Father, but when the fasting's ended, then the body's going to hunger. And that's going to be my opportune time. And I'm going after him. So he, he fails in this first temptation, but he's not finished yet. He goes on to say in verse 5, we don't know how much time lapsed between these. But then he says, and he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So that's the, kind of the second temptation here. It struck me that he led him up. Uh, you remember the beginning of the temptation, it says he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. But here it says Satan led him up. Now, I don't, was it a vision? Did he literally take Jesus up? I, I, I tend to think it was a vision. He led him up in, in some ways in, in the vision. But it seems like the subtle, the subtle craftiness of Satan is indicated in the word he led. He led. 
The devil speaks in his first temptation, yet here he presumes to lead, at least by implication, as I said, perhaps in spirit. The implication being, I'm one to be followed. Come with me, Jesus. I want to show you something. Not only that, but in a subtle way, if he can establish himself as head, leader, perhaps Jesus might slip up or slip into the logical progression of acknowledging him as such by simply following him or ultimately by worshiping him. Kind of, to, kind of done to minimize the depth of the sin of doing so. If I can get him to, if I can establish in his mind my leadership, perhaps he'll, he'll, that'll go unnoticed and he'll begin to acclimate himself to letting me lead. And if I can get him hooked there, I could push him all the way to the point of bowing down and worshiping me. And, and it'll take away the weightiness of that sin if I can get him acclimated to the idea of following me to begin with. Satan's, Satan's crafty. You may ever read the screw tape letters? C.S. Lewis? Read them sometimes. It, it'll, it'll make you have nightmares. I mean, it will, it will not let you sleep. Because it's, it's, a, it's a fictionalized conversation between the master devil and all the, the demons under his will and, and how they're going to exploit humanity and how they play these little crafty games. And it'll, it'll, make you, it'll keep you up at night. Uh, I recommend you read it. Just don't read it before bedtime. Read it in the morning. And then you can think about it all day. And that's almost what it seems like Satan is up to in this temptation. Remember here that Jesus, again, is fully man, subject, if not wholly submissive to the Father, to the, deceptive, to the deceptions of the deceiver, and as I've said, the father of lies. He's a man. And Satan knows he's, he's, he's taken upon himself flesh to be our substitute, and so he's not going to exercise his deity sovereignly and, and personally, but he's yielding to the Father. You know, Jesus says as much as well in the Gospel of John when he says, the things that I do, these are the things that the Father's doing. I don't do nothing on my own. I see what the Father does, and I do what the Father is doing. The Father is doing these things, and I am joining the Father in His work. I am yielded and communing with the Father. When I see the Father moving, that is what I do. I do everything that the Father tells me. I think the emphasis there is I'm not exercising some, some authority independent of the, of the Father. I am in my flesh submitted to the Father. And the Father says, turn the water into the wine. I speak the words because the command is the Father's. I'm not doing that on my own initiative. If I raise the dead, I'm doing that which the Father is doing. If I'm walking on the sea, I am doing that which the Father is doing. I'm acting in I'm acting in submission and a perfect obedience to what the Father is doing. And that's what Satan seems to be trying to draw him out from in these temptations. As I said, remember that Jesus is fully man. He's subject to the Father, submissive to the Father, but also as fully man to the deceptions of the deceiver and father of lies. I've heard you've heard debate before, could Jesus be tempted? And there's a, you can almost tell where people are in their understanding of the deity and humanity of Christ because some would say, well, no, he's God. <laughs> well, if he couldn't be tempted, it wasn't because he was God. It's because he's perfectly obedient. <laughs> and so as fully man, the other team would say, well, yes, if he's fully man, he has to be subject to the temptation. They, must, they, have, to have, they have to have some bite or some appeal to the flesh. And then you ask, well, could he have sinned? And 
in the fullness of his humanity, I think he could have. But I think he wouldn't because he was perfectly obedient to the Father in, in, in his flesh. Again, Jesus is fully man, and had he had a sinful nature, might surely have fallen, would surely have fallen to some higher view of the one wielding such powers as revelation. Because he says to him, another temptation here, I think, is he says, and he showed him. I, the, the devil led him up and showed him. Now I'm, now, I'm, now I'm exercising headship, and I'm showing the power of revelation. I'm going to show you something. And all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And had he been a sinful man, had he had a sinful nature, he might have been impressed by such a thing, wouldn't you? If you were taken up and given a vision of all the kingdoms and all their glory, all of all the world, all in a single moment of time, you might have been tempted in your fleshliness to bow down before one demonstrating or wielding such power of revelation. So it seems as though everything Satan's doing is to try to draw some implication from Jesus and some assumption in regards to the humanity of Jesus. If I can get him to, if I can get him to acknowledge my power, I've already, I've got him. I've got him. Because in that moment, he will not be submitting to the Father. So he's fully man and yielding to this. Uh, I thought about all the kingdoms of the world and the implication of that, there has been some glorious kingdoms, right? I mean, you think of the riches of all the kingdoms ever established in this world. Perhaps that was kingdoms past, present, and future kingdoms in this world. The wealth of the, of the world and all of it gathered together and all of its glory in a moment of time. Just, just passing it before his eyes. See all this glory. I'm going to give it to you. Notice what he says in that passage. I have, been, I have been given these. These have been given to me. They're mine to do with what I want. And in a sense, he's not lying here because he is the prince of the power of the air. And he has a certain license to exercise his way among the things of this world. And he builds and helps to get these grand kingdoms and all their glory and all their lust. He don't show the dark underbelly of these kingdoms. He shows the glory of them. He says, they're mine. They've been given to me. You don't have them, implication, but I've got them. But if you want them, I can give them to you. Now he's, now he's presenting himself as the one who gives to Jesus the thing Jesus would want. What struck me about this, and this is my thinking, but you're appealing now to one whose kingdom it will be, but not these kingdoms. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. All creation is his, will be his. It's for him. But you're telling him, the one for whom it exists, that they're yours and that you can give them to him. I wondered if Jesus said, oh, yeah, you could give me these. But these are under a curse, every one of them. From the grandest kingdom, from the earliest on to the grandest kingdom that will ever be in this world, to all the glories of creation itself, it's under a curse. But I'm inheriting one when the curse is lifted. <laughs> I've got a greater kingdom than what you're offering me here. I don't know in his humanity if Jesus understood that or realized that in the moment in his subjection to the Father. Perhaps he did. But he's not falling to this kingdom either. Because he says, 
Verse 7, Satan says to him, Therefore, if you worship before me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's his answer, single word answer. He doesn't engage him any further in conversation. He's already said, man doesn't live by bread alone. And the following, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And here, again, he cites him with the scripture. It's interesting to me as well, uh, this last temptation as well, but... Uh, I'm trying to think. Psalm, I think Psalm Psalm 91 uh, involves this next temptation. He says, "From there he led him to Jerusalem." I thought that was interesting as well. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and this is the Son of God. Uh, this is Jesus uh, in in his humanity, walking in submission to the Father. It's obvious that Jerusalem is going to be central to the kingdom of God. And so he, he goes from saying, here's all the kingdoms, I'll give them you this. And when Jesus doesn't fall for this, then he goes to the heart of Jewish life and God's life's people to Jerusalem. And he says to him, he led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And, and again, he is written, their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. If you read Psalm 91, verse 11, if you read the entire psalm, the whole psalm is a psalm of the security of the one who trusts the Lord. And so the devil is citing a psalm that tells, you, that tells the believers about the security of those who trust in the Lord to get him to, trust, to overly trust in the Lord. I wondered here as well if the devil's not drawing on this understanding that Jesus is going to inherit a kingdom, but the inheritance is going to require the death of the king. And, and I wondered if he's not trying to exploit that here and say, okay, the kingdom is central around Jerusalem. It's God's chosen place and his presence to be with his people. And so he takes him up to Jerusalem, he takes him up on the pinnacle, and then he inserts the idea of, okay, granted, you may have to die. But do it yourself. Throw yourself down from the temple. After all, the angels, if you're the one you say you are, the angels will guard you and they won't let you strike your foot against the stone. You have security. So why not, why not put the security to test and throw yourself off? It's almost as if he said, bring about your own death if you really want the kingdom. Here's the kingdom. It's the central place of the kingdom, Jerusalem, the city of God, the place where God meets with his people. If this is the capital of your kingdom, then go ahead and purchase it. Go ahead and get, throw down your life and lay down your life and purchase it. Well, see, that would exclude uh, him being handed over. That would exclude our part in his crucifixion. That would exclude those who carried him to his cross. Yes, he laid down his life. And yes, but he submitted to those for whom he was dying. They carried him to his death. Throwing himself off the temple just to end his life. If that would have purchased the kingdom and salvation, why wouldn't you do that? But Jesus understood in his submission to the Father that that's not the path. That's not the way of my inheritance. I love Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
So Jesus, in some ways, it seems to me like Satan has keyed in now. There's a cross central to this inheritance of this kingdom, even, even a kingdom superior to the one I just offered him because he's not, he doesn't receive it. He doesn't worship me, so he seems not to be interested in all the kingdoms I can give him, so there must be a superior kingdom. But if I can, if I can keep the cross out of this, he'll never have that superior kingdom. So throw yourself down. Don't worry about the cross. Just bypass the cross. End your life. If After all, if that's all that's involved, just end your life. Well, there's no taking upon himself the sins, our sins, without the cross. And there's no inheritance of the kingdom without the cross. And so Jesus responds to him. Verse 12, and Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, you shall, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And at that point, uh, Matthew says, at that point, the devil left him and angels came and ministered to him in that moment. Uh, I, lo I love the last verse here because it says, and Satan left him to, until an opportune time. Would, you, would anybody like to volunteer at least one of those times, opportune times when he came back? That's what I was thinking. When he sweat as, it though, as though it were great drops of blood in earnest prayer, I wondered if that wasn't the next opportune time. And I wondered if the same goal then wasn't the goal that he had at the very beginning. By all means, we cannot let this man go to the cross. If we can get him to act in his deity and disqualify himself as a, as a sacrifice for man, if we can get him to reach out and take something lesser than what is his by inheritance, if we can get him to act in ways that are contrary to God's way of bringing about that salvation, if I can get him to deviate from his course and his submission to the Father one iota, I could ruin humanity and all of creation. And our Savior stood strong. Aren't you glad? It is amazing. It is nothing short of miraculous. And to me, there was a special encouragement here that just as Jesus in, the, in his humanity, walking in submission to the Father, was able to endure temptation, so I think it must be possible for we who have the Spirit indwelling us, walking in obedience and submission to the Father, can overcome the temptations in our own lives. I'm not saying we'll ever be perfect and sinful, sinless. But I'm saying Jesus gave us a pattern of something that's critical to our living holy lives. And that is walking in submission to the Father and living by every word that proceeds out of his mouth. Maybe, maybe if we practice that, we'll find that we're less and less sinful. And maybe we'll understand the key uh, to Jesus, Jesus making himself the perfect sacrifice. Uh, it is amazing to think that this one who endured such things as this and yet without sin uh, followed that submission all the way to the point of being nailed to a, a rugged cross, a bloody, brutal cross, all the while knowing that I have no sins for which death to make a claim upon me. But yet I will endure death. I will receive these to myself take their sins upon me, and because of their sins, receive the wages due those things. And in death, pay those wages by my perfect life, pay those wages, and having exhausted that debt, raise them up to new life with me, because there's no sin theirs or mine to hold me in the grave. Uh, we are free in Christ because of 
this, this very thing, these temptations. He's enduring this throughout his ministry and his life. I, I think sometimes myself, I, if I could go one day and be relatively sinless in thought and action, uh, I, I feel so happy. Can you imagine living all of your existence uh, before the incarnation, after the incarnation, and beyond the incarnation, never one moment out of fellowship with God, never sinning? Uh, that was our Christ. And in the moment when he took all of our sins upon him and he cries out, my God, my God, when I thou forsaken me, I'm convinced that that's the first time in the existence of Jesus he ever, uh, there was ever a cloud uh, or, or obscurity between his fellowship and communion with the Father. And, and that was, I don't think he was citing Psalm 22. I think the psalmist was citing him because that was the heart of this Jesus who never knew sin but at that moment had yours and mine upon him. This perfect Jesus, stand with me. So as we begin to work our way towards our observance of the resurrection of Christ, uh, this text is often used to set in most in the fasting uh, that we do in preparation. Uh, some people fast, uh, maybe they pick out one food they don't want. I've heard of people fasting off of social media. Uh, that should be a permanent fast. <laughs> um, but, but depriving themselves of something that might draw their attention to what their real need is, who is Christ, and in anticipation of celebrating that he is indeed risen from the dead. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this precious Christ. He is indeed God. But, Father, he walked and took upon himself flesh and endured the flesh. He knows what it is to walk in the flesh. He knows the weakness of the, the muscles, the sweat of the brow, and the blood of the veins. And Father, I'm thankful that he demonstrated himself faithful, as Philippians says, even unto the death, the death of a cross. And Father, I rejoice, we rejoice, that in this great sacrifice you have assigned to him now a name that is above every name, a name at which every knee will bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and will confess that he is Lord to your glory. Lord, thank you that this is our Savior. And Father, forgive us for where we fall so short of that in our daily lives and in our anxieties and in our fretting about the smallest matters when we have a gracious God who has provided all that is needed for us to be for life and faithfulness. So help us to bring these things to mind, to remember these things as we live our Christian lives. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. We again remember those who are grieving now with the shooting in Kansas City and just the futility and the insanity of it all. Father, I just pray that this world would open our eyes and we would understand that we have sown the wind and now we are indeed reaping the whirlwind in many ways and that we might, as Hosea says, return to you. Again, Lord, we thank you for your goodness, your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.